This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, sharing ideas, shaping policy. Good evening and welcome to the Institute of International and European Affairs in 8th Great North Great Georgia Street. I'm David O'Sullivan, I'm the, the Director General of the Institute and it's my very great privilege to uh, welcome you all this evening to our first hybrid event. So this is, we actually have people in the room. Uh, we've actually had a little wine reception, which was very pleasant. Uh, sorry about those of you online. You, may like to open, you might like to open your own bottle. Uh, but uh, it's uh, fantastic that our, our first hybrid event back in the building uh, is organized jointly with the John and Pat Hume Foundation. And I'd like to say a special word of thanks and welcome to them, uh, Sean Farron and uh, Tim Atwood. Uh, and it's great that we're able to uh, tonight uh, have the second uh, uh, John Hume uh, Peace uh, Lecture. I, I had the honor to deliver the first one uh, last year, but online, unfortunately. And this evening, we're very privileged to have uh, Bridget Laffin, uh, who will deliver uh, uh, in this hybrid event uh, her the, the second uh, in, in, in the series. Um, we're going to start with a short video describing John's remarkable contribution to uh, to peace and and uh, the European spirit of peace. And then I will introduce Bridget and we will begin. So please enjoy the video. We shall overcome. Thank you. The process in Northern Ireland, as far as I'm concerned, has been most heavily inspired by the inspiration of this place. When I first came here in 1979, I tell this story often, I went for a walk across the bridge from Strasbourg to Kiel. I stopped and I thought, 30 years ago, if I had stood in this bridge and said, don't worry, although there's 25 million people dead for the second time in a century, and for centuries, these peoples of Europe have slaughtered one another. Now it's all over. And in 30 years, they will all be together. I might have been sent to see a psychiatrist. But it happened. And let us not forget that European Union is the best example, as we have learned, in the history of the world of conflict resolution. And the philosophy that created European Union and the peace of Europe is the philosophy, if you study it, that is at the heart of our agreement. Respect for difference and for diversity. The creation of institutions which respect that diversity, but which allow all sections to work together in their common interests. Economics spill their sweat, not their blood. And by doing that, begin the real healing process of breaking down the barriers of centuries and the new society evolves. That is the philosophy of European Union and it's the philosophy of real peace. And might I add, that is the philosophy that we should be sending to areas of conflict in the world. We should not be sending armies we should be sending a philosophy. And given the philosophy that we have in this building, it's a philosophy that will resolve conflict everywhere. Because at the end of the day, all conflict 
is about the same thing. It's about seeing difference as a threat. And what we all have to learn is what the peoples of Europe learned, and we are learning in Northern Ireland. Difference, whether it's your race or your religion or your nationality, is an accident of birth. And it's not something we should be engaged in conflict about. It's something we should respect. Thank you very much for your expression today. The Nobel Peace Prize was collected by the heads of the EU's three main institutions. The ceremony took place in Norway's capital, Oslo. The European Union was awarded the prize for its role in uniting the continent and bringing about reconciliation after two world wars. The prize is for all Europeans and leaders from across Europe stood to show their support. The chairman of the prize committee praised the work of the EU. Jean Monnet said that nothing can be achieved without human beings, but nothing becomes permanent without institutions. The EU has constantly been a central driving force throughout these processes of reconciliation. The EU has in fact helped to bring about both the fraternity between nations and the promotion of peace congresses, of which Alfred Nobel wrote in his will. Germany and France were commended for turning from old enemies into allies. The presence here today of German Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Francois Hollande make this day very particular, symbolic for all of us, I believe. of the State of the Union. I am reminded of the words of John Hume, one of the great Europeans who sadly passed away this year. If so many people live in peace today on the island of Ireland, it is in large part because of his unwavering belief in humanity and conflict resolution. He used to say, that conflict was about difference and that peace was about respect for difference. And as he so rightly reminded this house in 1998, and I quote, the European visionaries decided that difference is not a threat. Difference is natural. Difference is the essence of humanity, end of quote. And these. No matter how often I hear that speech of John to the European Parliament, it's always incredibly moving. And of course, with the war in Ukraine, it has a, a resonance today which we never would have expected to see in our lifetime. So this is a, a, a remarkable moment to ask Bridget Laffin to deliver uh, a lecture, the second in the series of the, the John Hume European Peace Lecture. Bridget hardly needs any introduction, which of course is always how you begin when you then start to introduce someone. Um, but uh, she has a, a very distinguished academic career. She's the Emeritus Pre 
professor at the European University Institute in Florence, and she was director of the Robert Schumann Center there for advanced studies uh, until her retirement quite recently. Uh, she was professor of European politics at the School of Politics and International Relations in UCD. Uh, she was vice president of UCD and the principal of the College of Human Sciences. She was uh, elected a member of the Royal Irish Academy uh, in 2004. And she is frankly one of our leading public intellectuals and frankly a globally recognized expert on European politics. So nobody could be better placed than to share with us this evening some thoughts on European Union and peace in these conflictual times. Please, Bridget, floor is yours. Um, good, good evening, everyone, and welcome to all of you who are linking in on online. Uh, I want to thank the John and Pat Hume Foundation for the honour of delivering this, the second European Spirit of Peace lecture. John is one of my great heroes, uh, and he was that extraordinary mixture of, uh, he conceptualised how politics could change and how the world could change, but he also then worked from morning to night to deliver uh, that new world. He was both a man of action, a warrior for peace, but also he conceptualized how politics can change even in the most difficult, uh, even in the most difficult circumstances. And so for me, it's an honor and what better way to start but to listen to John himself, both in the European Parliament, but also the ways in which the European Union represented in some senses that centuries long search in Europe uh, for peace. It's very poignant to be delivering this lecture this evening because war has returned to our continent. That peace that John was so confident of in the European Parliament in one of his last speeches uh, is now gone. Uh, Europe's security architecture is under threat like never before in the post-Cold War era. And there was much more stability and solidity to the Cold War era than there is uh, than there is today. We live in a world of shift and shock. We live in a world of tremendous change at every level, at the global, at the regional, at the national. And that, um, that return of peace, that sense in which the 24th of February represented a shattering of illusions for Europeans. And my view is that we shouldn't really have had the illusions that we had, but many, many people in Europe had those illusions. They assumed that peace was permanent. They assumed that war would not return to our continent. And we should remember not just uh, the collapse of Yugoslavia and the barbarity that that represented, but also since 2008, we've had a lot of low-grade conflict uh, in Europe. And John, here, when he talks of war, he says, whenever there is war, there's going to be killing, killing of large numbers of human beings. Therefore, that should never be a method of solving a problem. In other words, war, uh, war solves nothing. It just leaves human destruction, material destruction, and also hatred. But one can't imagine how Ukraine and Russia can live side by side together in any sort of peace and uh, friendship for a very, very long time because of the barbarity of what we're seeing. So what I want to do this evening is four things. Firstly, I want to talk a little about what kind of EU confronts this war in Europe. In other words, 
what what has the EU become over this last long decade of crisis? Uh, then how Europe responded to the war, the impact of this war on the EU, which I will argue is fundamental. And then I will devote quite uh, some attention to enlargement because this war has brought enlargement back to the center of, uh, of, the, European, of the European agenda. So I'll probably spend more time uh, on enlargement than I will on the others. But let me begin by, I'm working on a conceptualization of the EU after this decade of crisis. And my view is that a lot of, of the academic literature on the EU uh, under, over argues its weakness and its every crisis the EU faces is argued as being existential. In other words, that this is not a, a robust political system. Well, my view is that it is, that it's much more robust and resilient than, uh, than is sometimes, uh, than my fellow scholars argue. Uh, they, you know, there's a literature on the EU, it fails forward, et cetera, et cetera. There's a literature on disintegration. Well, my view for what it's worth is that the EU has become hardened by crisis, has become more robust through crisis and more resilient. And the overall conceptualization of the EU that I'm working on is that the EU has become a collective power. Uh, and I argue it's become a collective power because other conceptualizations of the EU, one, that the EU is market power Europe. In other words, it's all about the material, the single market and the Brussels effect. I think that's a really important pillar of the EU, but does not in any way fully uh, capture the EU. Nor do I think that normative power Europe captures what the EU is today, because normative power Europe is a Europe that's driven only by values. Uh, all political systems have a tension between interests and values, and one should not uh, assume that the EU is not as driven by interests as all other political systems in the world. So both, um, both uh, market power and normative power are important in the EU, but what we need to grasp is what this collective capacity of the EU is. Uh, and how the EU has garnered this uh, collective capacity. And it's a form, it's a way of looking at the EU that looks not on the EU's command power, its power to get A to do B, but rather on its ability to get things done, its ability to amass resources, amass uh, policy instruments, and achieve outcomes. It's outcome driven. Uh, now, it's a paper that I won't finish until the uh, on probably until next January, but I've been working on it for quite quite some time, and it's my it's I probably one of my last contributions I will make to the literature on the uh, on the EU. But collective power Europe also looks at capability and on the whole and the parts, uh, and I have argued. Uh, already that this power was in display during Brexit, the pandemic, and now in the war on Ukraine. And what are the elements of this? How does, how does one analyze this collective power in action? Well, the first is leadership and framing. It's firstly, can the EU collectively frame the challenges that it faces? How did it, for example, frame Brexit? How did it frame uh, the pandemic and how did it frame uh, how did it frame uh, the war in Ukraine? 
and the speed with which it can frame. And unity or near unity is very essential to this. Unless the EU is unified or near, almost unified, then uh, its collective power is undermined. And then leadership. Again, when you look at the literature on leadership in the EU, the assumption is that there is no leadership in the e there is no leadership in the EU, or that that leadership is slow, and uh, that that leadership uh, doesn't actually get stuff done. And again, I think the evidence of all those three crises suggests that that's simply not the case. But it's a distributed leadership. It involves the European Council, the Commission, national capitals. Uh, and it very much, again, is driven by the intensity of engagement that we now see in the EU. So heads of government today, each of them has a Sherpa. Their Sherpa is in constant permanent contact with the Sherpas of every head of government across Europe. It's they, they talk to each other on the phone. It's not like it was even 20 years ago when head of government to head of government involved a very orchestrated, a very complex orchestration of time of the phone call, et cetera, et cetera. So this intensity that we see uh, just the minute I mentioned the mobile phone, that the, the, intensity, uh, the intensity of engagement that we see at all levels, across the capitals, horizontally, but also vertically to Brussels. So one part of this collective power Europe is leadership and framing. The second, oh, excuse me, the second is the institutional coordination and what I would call co-creation of policy. And we have not done enough work as academics on the way in which the Lisbon Treaty has altered interinstitutional relations in the EU, established new roles in the EU, like the president of the European Council. In other words, strengthened the collective element in the Brussels, uh, in the Brussels arena. And also that co-creation that, yes, there are conflicts between Council and Parliament, mostly, but they work very closely together now, and particularly the Council-Commission relationship. The, Commission is tasked by the European Council, but the Commission also has a capacity to act itself and does. So it's that the way in which this, again, intensity of engagement, uh, and that starts at the level of European Council heads of government down. And I looked at the number of bilateral meetings between heads of government in the lead up to the July uh, recovery and reform package, which was a major breakthrough in European integration. There were 36 meetings in the weeks before between collective heads of government, all multiple, by some of them bilateral, some of them trilateral, some of them involving four. So there's a, there's a change in the way the system is working and the way in which I would argue it's being governed. And then finally, the policy toolkit. The EU has to be experimental. It's a system with a very high level of diversity, as John, as, as John said. And when you've very diverse, heterogeneous uh, engagement of different actors, you must be experimental. You must search for ways of either using existing tools that you have or uh, using, uh, using um, creating new ones. So there, those are the three elements of, of the collective power Europe. But moving on then to Ukraine, how did the 
how did the framing of the war in Ukraine happen? Well, it happened in one day. There was a heads of government meeting the evening of the 24th of February. And it was very clear that the framing was that war had returned to Europe, that force and coercion to change borders uh, had no, has no place in the 21st century. It imposed full responsibility on, on Russian aggression and the breaches of international, uh, of international law, and that Russia would be held accountable for its war crimes or for what it did. In terms of the actors and in institutions involved, the European Council has already met five times on the Ukraine war, but because it was the war, Zelensky has joined twice, Biden attended one, and it joined another by video. So there's also a, a, an extra European dimension to this, both extending to the East and involving the United States. But all council formations, every single council has met on Ukraine in one form or another, be it transport, be it health, education, education for Ukrainian refugees, et cetera, et cetera. They've all, they have all met and they're exchanging information, but also implementing uh, the responses to the war. Of course, the commission and the EEAS are major players. The commission understood that there was a war coming or at least uh, prepared for it. And they had done a lot of work on sanctions so that the EU was literally ready to go. And that was internal, uh, internal commission driven, uh, an internal commission dynamic with the EAS. And it did matter that von der Leyen had been a minister for defense. She understood uh, this, uh, this area. And then uh, it's interesting that the EU military committee, not NATO, is the clearinghouse for weapons requests from Ukraine. Why? Because NATO does not want to be drawn into a hot war with Russia. It wants to try to keep uh, a cordon sanitaire around it because of the threat of nuclear war. Uh, and so the NATO is very happy to outsource the management of the um, of the weapons clearing from Ukraine to the EU. And of course, the other big news, and this for Ireland matters, NATO and the EU will work much more closely together from now on. It's been building for quite a while, but now there will be more EU member states in NATO. We've already seen um, the, the change in, the dramatic for me change in Sweden. I was less surprised by the change in, in Finland. But NATO-EU will intensify their engagement on security without, and that's something that we in this country uh, need, to, uh, need to come to terms with. In terms of the policy toolkit, the EU used every capacity that it had. We're already at uh, six uh, sanctions packages and there's coordination both with the US and with the UK on, on the sanctions regimes to try to watch the loopholes and try to make sure that, um, that, that they, they, they stick. Uh, again, a game changer for me was the use of the European Peace Facility within 72 hours was purchasing lethal weapons to send to a third country. And that would oh, could only happen in the circumstance of a, a war. The EU 
mobilized its temporary uh, protection directive uh, for the first time ever. It's been on the statute books since about 2004, if I'm correct, used it for the first time ever to facilitate uh, Ukrainian refugees. And then uh, trade liberalization has already happened uh, and also macroeconomic support. So every capability that the EU has uh, is being used in the war uh, to support Ukraine in this war. But of course, this war isn't just about Ukraine. This war has now become also about the future of the EU and the kind of EU we will live with uh, in the next period. And that happened again very quickly. 24th of February, the invasion, first European Council, the Versailles, um, the Versailles meeting uh, on the 10th and 11th of March, where the conclusions or the Versailles Declaration, as it's called, uh, begins to look at what this means for the EU. And it's very clear that it was a French presidency because the words European sovereignty uh, found their way into the declaration. That wouldn't have happened if that meeting was held in any other country, <laughs> in any other member state, but European sovereignty, which is uh, the French conception of open strategic, uh, open strategic autonomy. But again, there was a recognition that for the EU, that this had implications for defense, implications for energy dependency, and implications for uh, that the EU needed to look at its entire model of political economy in order to become more robust supply chains, digital, all of it, cyber, everything. So it's not this war has led to a transformative agenda for the EU. And the EU already had a transformative agenda, which was the Green Deal and the climate crisis. But now added to that is the challenge of the return of war, uh, of war to Europe. And one of my big fears is that the war will crowd out the climate agenda. And that's a real danger now. Uh, and yet the climate crisis is the planetary crisis, is the intergenerational crisis, and is the future of the world crisis. But it's very hard to argue with artillery and bombs. I'm afraid when that happens, you have to, uh, you have to, you have to respond. And then in terms of enlargement, uh, the declaration said that Ukraine was a member or part of the European family. And this, I'll now turn to enlargement because this is the big, of the many changes that this war has brought, it has ratcheted enlargement up the European Union agenda in a way that nothing else would have. Enlargement was dead, there was enlargement fatigue, and I'll talk about the Western Balkans, but this means there is no alternative but to face up to the potential of a European Union of 36 states. And that's a frightening prospect because the EU is not currently anywhere close to being able to govern this, to manage this. And the existing member states have to rethink and reconceptualize what the EU is and will be because of this scale. Scale matters in politics, as we know. And of course, the EU will become uh, much larger. But just look at the original EU. 
that small six member states, the club of the defeated. Interestingly, you'll see Algeria still part of the EU simply because at that stage, uh, Algerian independence was clearly coming, but was not yet secure. It was, uh, it, it was a part of metropolitan uh, France, but that was a club of the defeated. The, and one of the, um, after the war, the EU in military terms, or sorry, European military terms divided Cold War, NATO Warsaw Pact. But in economic, in terms of the economic framework, it's split in Western Europe between EU and EFTA. And in the 1950s, it could not necessarily have been predicted that this club would become the powerful one because there were two great trading states in Europe, in Western Europe at the time. Uh, Germany was re-emerging as a powerful trading state and the United Kingdom was still a very important trading state. My, I think EFTA lost out in this competition for two reasons. Institutionally, it wasn't as dynamic as the EU, but also Germany became a much more powerful trading state than the United Kingdom with the UK decline. Uh, but if you look at the EU today, uh, this is EU 27, completely up to date. Uh, and you will see that it's now continental in scale, but its borders are not finished. And if we look at, uh, the EU has had seven enlargements, but six of those happened before the end of the Cold War. And so many more have happened, member states have joined. So enlargement was a particular phenomenon uh, related to the collapse of communism in the Eastern half of the continent, where the people decided, not elites, it was the people decided to look west. The people decided that they wanted their future political stability uh, and prosperity guaranteed in the EU. And I was, I happened to be uh, there in, uh, I think it was May 1991 in Prague when Mitterrand was trying to persuade the Czechs that they really didn't want to become members of the EU, uh, but that they, uh, that they should become a part of this European Confederation that was that Mitterrand wanted. And Mitterrand and Havel were on a stage and Mitterrand spoke first and he made pitch, his pitch for the European Confederation uh, and Havel just wiped the floor with him. And you knew that the return to Europe for these states was not a European Confederation, but it was to be a member state of the EU. So we have to think that enlargement is not something that happens the EU. It's been completely intrinsic to the dynamic of European integration. Uh, but of course, enlargement because, uh, because enlargement by definition, or when you have candidate states, by definition, you have unsettled borders and political systems and polities prefer settled borders, as we know on this. <laughs> borders are problematic. <laughs> and so it is uh, that unsettled nature of the borders of the EU have always, that widening dynamic, have always been a source of stress and tension. But the EU now has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven formal candidate states, 
and three potential candidate states, which, if they all join, brings the total to 37. Uh, my view is, for what it's worth, that Turkey will not become a member of the EU, or at least on not for the foreseeable future, but no one can say it's not a candidate state, and it probably makes no sense uh, to do that. But that's these are all the other important thing to remember about the EU is it has not been a club of the rich. That 72% of all of the member states that have joined the EU have been poorer than the core on accession. So it's been a club that's been open to countries with much lower levels of development and much weaker institutions. But there are, there's a lot of difficulty in here in terms of capability, capacity, readiness, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the story of the Western Balkans has been very problematic, that the Western Balkans got stabilization and association agreements in 1999, and then we've had one country getting candidate status, accession negotiations beginning with some, not with the others. We've had blockages, both the Greeks and Bulgarians uh, uh, blocking. Uh, and so it's been a very, the EU's engagement with the Western Balkans has not stabilized that region in the way that, for example, the Eastern enlargement did. That it's been a much more uh, pro problematic engagement. And it's been a bit like waiting for Godot. And it's waiting for Godot, not just because of the EU, but these 10, they're small and unstable states. And there's Freedom House, for example, in 2019, downgraded Serbia from being free to partially free. Now, that's a huge problem. And in my view, uh, Serbia should be, its candidate status should be taken away from Serbia. I think you've got the EU, and I will argue at the end, uh, it's got to be much stricter. But of course, it's extremely difficult to be strict with countries on the outside when you've Orban on the inside. And Freedom House had somewhat similar conclusions about the state of Hungary, uh, which is, again, not a democracy, but there are real problems of criminality, uh, rule of law, uh, and the EU has learned very painfully that it has not been able to stop backsliding of existing member states, both in Hungary and in Poland. So it, the weakness of the internal instruments to address backsliding have been, uh, has been very problematic. And there's been resistance in existing member states to yet more enlargement. So the argument is that the, the argument for enlargement fatigue revolves around an argument about absorption capacity, that the EU, the big bang enlargement of the mid 2000s stretched the EU's capacity. And that is really almost, I think Juncker said it in 14, no enlargements in my, during my, my, my presidency. Uh, but of course, there isn't just fatigue. There's also in member states a certain resistance and a worry about what a union of 36 might look like, how you absorb all of these states. And remember that we worry a lot in small countries about the large states. The large states worry a lot about what they call the tyranny of the tiny. In other words, the capacity of small states 
to make life difficult in the, uh, in the EU. So enlargement has been on the back burner for, uh, for a long time, as well as during all of this, you had the uh, presence of uh, you had the presence of other powers being very active in the Balkans, the Russians uh, and the Chinese. So the EU meets this enlargement challenge after a lot of enlargement fatigue, enlargement resistance, and a sense in which enlargement has become almost technocratic process rather than policy making. But in my view, all that changed on the 24th of February. And it changed, and this is again something that we must remember. The reason it changed was the agency of the Ukrainians themselves. If, as Putin expected, he'd rolled into Kyiv in three days, and we know that some of the forward battalions had their dress, uh, their dress uniforms with them because they thought they'd have their victory march pretty quickly. If that had happened, the West would have imposed sanctions. There'd be a lot of wringing of hands. The sanctions would have been draconian, but we wouldn't be talking about the enlargement of the EU. So we have to really salute the resist the, the sheer will of the Ukrainians to take this on because it's their blood, it's their cities, and it's their future. And so, and it's their agency. And they are, if you look at what, firstly, how Russia has conducted the war, but also at what his, what he, what he, the aim is, the aim is to destroy Ukraine and to have a buffer, a buffer zone around uh, vassal states uh, around uh, Russia. And what happens in Ukraine has implications uh, for all, Moldova, Georgia, et cetera, et cetera. So this war matters to the future of Europe in ways that we're only beginning to really get a, a handle on. Uh, and Ukraine cannot lose this war. If Ukraine loses this war, then the future of Europe, in my view, is very, is very different. So what was remarkable was the speed with which Ukraine demanded membership. It, four days into the war, a Ukraine formally applies to become a member state of the EU and was very smart politics because if you're being, if, if you're facing what they face, what, what they were facing back then and still face, uh, then you also need to have some perspective for the future. And of course, the copycat uh, domino effect came into play immediately with Moldova and Georgia. And what I find again remarkable is all three countries, but particularly Ukraine, answered the Commission's questionnaire. The Commission, uh, true to form, sent its questionnaires. If you uh, if you want us to issue, if if the European Council asks us to issue an opinion, we need answers to the following questions. Well, the Ukrainians said, if you want, uh, if you have questions, we will answer, and they were right. Feed the beast. Uh, but uh, it wasn't, there was a lot of concern because obviously a, a country at war, uh, but also the readiness of these countries to join the EU, their level of economic development, the state of democracy, et cetera, et cetera. But because it was a war, 
and because of Ukrainian agency, in my view, it was inevitable that it would have been extremely difficult for the EU to deny um, candidate status. And as we know, the Commission on the 17th of June granted uh, granted uh, candidates, said, uh, at least advised the European Council, uh, while identifying uh, the usual conditionalities in the political, the economic, and that famous uh, need to be able to implement the acquis. It was clear to me that once all the heads of government went to Kyiv uh, before the European Council of the 23rd and 4th of June, it was a done deal, uh, it was clear that the European Council would support candidate status uh, for uh, two of the three countries. And they very clearly say that the future of all three countries lies within the European Union, and that then candidate status would be granted to the Ukraine and to Moldova. And of course, then the hedging the bets uh, will depend on meeting the Copenhagen criteria, taking consideration uh, into consideration the EU's capacity to um, the EU's capacity to um, to implement. Now, given that this will involve a very big shift in the EU, if we're thinking of an EU of 36, there's been a re-emergence of a lot of debate on what's called differentiated integration or integration, a Europe of concentric circles, a multi-speed, etc., etc. Uh, I think the important distinction is between multi-speed and multi-end. Multi-speed means that countries will join the EU, that they will approach the same end and will do so uh, over, uh, over time, but multi-end means different forms of membership. And any poor country, the rich, if you're Norway, the United Kingdom or Switzerland, you can afford to have multi-end relationships with the EU. But if you're Ukraine, Moldova, and any country in the Western Balkans, you rightly want the seat at the table and full membership. So multi-end uh, only works for, for some. Obviously, the other important dimension is geography and territory uh, and how much, uh, how much differentiation you can have within the EU based on, on territory or concentric circles, and then multi-menu different levels of uh, policy engagement. The EU already has very significant what's called variable geometry. But what are the ideas out there? Well, firstly, uh, our friend uh, Andrew Duff has been arguing for a new form of membership called affiliate membership. An affiliate membership would be much more than the existing association agreements based on partnerships, greater access to EU institutions for the countries in the partnerships, and would be open to any existing member state that wanted to go down into an affiliate membership rather than full membership. It's all about the UK in my view, and Andrew and I have debated this at, <laughs> have debated uh, this at length. But in, 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 in response to this, he sees uh, the EU core would need a much stronger federal government 
uh, and that you would have a European Security Council. Now, I'm going to pass over what he says about the institutions because I don't think there's a hope in hell it'll ever happen. Uh, Letta, very similar talks of seven unions, sectoral integration across foreign policy, asylum, energy, etc. Concentric circles, geography with a highly integrated federal hard core. And the and this the this is the one area that I really agree with him on. The veto on unanimity has to be addressed. So let uh, Enrico Letta, former. And then we have uh, Macron's European political community, which is very resonant of Mitterrand and his European Confederation. And uh, for Macron, this European organization could engage in a lot of coordination, cooperation, future partnerships. Uh, now, he has said it, it, it can be a, a lead up to membership, but doesn't prevent membership. And interestingly, the European Council, again, because it was a French presidency, uses the term European political community in its conclusions. And European Council conclusions are the Bible. And if you have something there, then it can be worked on thereafter. Uh, and this would offer a platform to all of the neighborhood, to all of the neighborhood countries. Interestingly, the European Council said, while respecting the EU's decision-making processes. So again, the protective, the protective mechanism coming in. But the only reason I'm uh, introducing all of these is to say that there are a lot of ideas floating out there on how the EU addresses this next massive wave of enlargement. So in my view, and this is uh, my very simplistic terms, in my view, we need to cease thinking of enlargement as a ladder to be climbed and see it rather more as blocks of uh, work policy areas that a country may get access to before full membership. And the way to do it is not through the accession treaty, because that's a one-off. The way to do it is enhanced association agreements. Uh, and you could well begin to have, uh, you could well begin to see that in the, in the next wave. So then I'm now going to finish. There is nothing but challenge here for the EU. Uh, the, the enlargement will be very difficult, very tricky. It will matter on the timing and sequencing. It can't be the unforeseen future. For example, I would argue Bulgaria and Romania joined the EU when they weren't ready, but it was much better for them in the EU they were in. Uh, and I would say that what the EU needs to do is there must be internal EU reform and particularly the veto. You cannot have a, an EU of 36 states with every country being able to, uh, to veto important areas of cooperation and we only think need to think back to the history of Poland where they effectively destroyed the country because of the veto. Uh, security will be much more important in the future of this EU than it was in the past and here one has to think about uh, Ukraine will not become a member of NATO so what security guarantees can the EU but also member states give Ukraine because they're going to need some or else uh, they're not going to be secure enough uh, in the uh, in the future but regardless 
defense and security has also ratcheted up the EU agenda. And in the EU, it will be around areas like PESCO. It will be to make sure that if the member states are now about to spend a lot more on defense, that they do so with far more effectiveness than they have in the past. The EU, the although defense expenditure has declined, the biggest problem is the lack of interoperability uh, across Europe. There is an enormous waste of money in this field in Europe. And Europe can no longer uh, indulge itself in that way because we also have to think about the uh, emergence of a Trump or Trump-like presidency in the, uh, in the United States, uh, an increasingly polarized country, a country where in, in the wrong hands, a, a president could simply withdraw Article 5, simply void Article 5. And then the Europeans, we will have no option, including this small island, but to decide how we defend ourselves in a world of great power competition and increasing security threat. Uh, I think it'll be very important to be able to reverse. There has to be carrots for uh, candidate states, but also sticks, because we cannot have a future in which new member states or existing member states can backslide on either the rule of law or basic democratic values and practice. Uh, and then there has to be extraordinary support for these countries. Their state capacity is much weaker than existing member states. Uh, and then there will have to be an enhanced neighborhood policy. And one has to hope that at some stage in the future, European-Russian relations will restabilize and become positive rather than negative. I don't know when that can happen. I don't know. Uh, it will happen, but I don't know when. It could be a very, very long time because the legacy of this war uh, will be a shadow over Europe. And we still don't know uh, the outcome of the war. I'll simply end by saying that what John said in the European Parliament all those years ago still holds, that this continent given its history and given the level of diversity and heterogeneity and the nature of the international system we now live in, in my view, has no choice but to get its house in order, to maintain its house in order, uh, because without it, uh, this will become a very ungovernable part of the world. And when you don't have good government, uh, then uh, you have all sorts of other uh, problems. So, Thank you very much, and I look forward to your question. Well, Bridget, thank you so much. What a tour de force. Uh, I, I think uh, um, you, you've raised the bar even higher than my speech of last year. No, so, so, so good luck to whoever comes next year, right? Um, listen, we don't have a huge amount of time, and I, I, I could ask you lots of questions. I, I just wanted to make one personal remark. Uh, you were right to make the emphasis on enlargement and, and the challenges, and I think you did it brilliantly. Um, I think the, the part of the, the issue is the nature of joining the European Union. I remember being in the Oval Office with Bill Clinton and Romano Prodi in 1999, and Clinton was pushing Turkish membership of the EU, and, and Romano, you know, in his way, said, yeah, you know, Bill, it'd be like Mexico becoming the 51st state of the union. And all the advisors were, no, 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 no. And then Bill Clinton said, 
hey, I kind of get what you mean. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting perspective. And it is true that membership of the European Union, it's not the same as joining NATO. It's not the same as joining the WTO or joining the Council of Europe. It is linking your, your economy, your politics, uh, your, 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 your societies uh, in irreversible ways for the moment, except for Brexit. Uh, the other thing I loved was, by the way, your map of 1957, reminding us that the first country to leave the EU was Algeria, right? Yeah. Uh, um, so listen, since this is our first hybrid meeting, I'm going to go straight to the floor to demonstrate that we do have people in the room, that this is not just a virtual occasion. Uh, we have a roving mic there. Uh, and uh, I will, Luke has the, the mic. Who would like to ask the first question? Barbara. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Patricia. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, one thing you didn't mention was the whole financial aspect of being a member of the European Union, which is, of course, hugely important to these countries. I mean, they see El Dorado um, and they've seen, you know, the development that has happened across um, uh, the EU. But also, I think that um, anything less than membership, and I mean, these are all interesting ideas, I think always looks very much second best and very much not what these countries aspire to. Um, and unless one of these sort of halfway houses, if you like, can actually, you know, give them some perspective in terms of also making final membership, but also, you know, some of the, the carrots coming on string, as well as the sticks, um, I really don't see any of them flying because it will never be seen as uh, the, the desirable thing uh, for them to do. So I just um, yeah. like to use. If you agree, we'll take yeah, one or two questions, and then because otherwise we we. Any other? Yes. Una. Thanks, Bridget. Una O'Dwyer. Uh, Bridget, you uh, put a certain emphasis on the need in, in the future to reconsider the veto and unanimity. I was just wondering whether you included in that concept the uh, legal situation whereby in passing legislation, the, uh, the enacting legislation, the council can only act by qualified majority vote with the agreement of the commission and requires unanimity to go against the agreement of the commission. Because if you would do away with that principle, you change the whole configuration of the EU institutions and the relative power and influence of the commission in particular. Thank you. Barry, and then Bridget, I'll let you reply. Hello, Bridget, thank you. Thank you so much. A, a quick one. What do you think the EU institutions can or should do to address democratic backsliding in current or prospective member states, given the risk it poses to peace and social cohesion? Thanks. Well, no challenge there. You, you have 30 seconds, okay, right? So to firstly, Barbara, on the financial aspect, absolutely right. But if you think about the EU budget as a relatively small budget, but what it can kickstart, and it can elevate countries' basic infrastructure, their education systems. So in my view, it's an absolutely necessary accompaniment of uh, entry into what is a very tough competitive market. So you've got to have solidarity in my view. And I think the structural funds have been in both by introducing planning and all of that have been broadly a very a great success. Uh, not always, but, but uh, not all countries have used 
structural funds well or wisely. We probably, I would say, in this country, ended up with too many golf courses, but <laughs> that's, that's, another, uh, that's another matter. I fully agree with you on membership being second, uh, that anything less than full membership for these countries would be seen as second best, and therefore, whatever European political community emerges, if it does, then will only be a staging for, for these countries would be only a staging, but it may be something that other countries like the Security Council and UK, Norway, et cetera, et cetera, uh, might, uh, might want. I also think that the EU already has a core and the core of the EU are all those countries that are in everything. So it's an open core. It's not a closed, but those who argue for uh, the so-called the hard federal core, they really do want a tiered political system. And that doesn't, in my view, work. So I, I, I fully agree, I fully agree with you. Una, on, on the veto, when I, uh, when I say the need to look at the veto, so I think it has to be looked at really carefully in foreign policy. And there, I think what you're looking for is not traditional QMD, but consensus minus one or two. In other words, to prevent one country being able, I think you would have to expand significantly the use of QMD across policy fields, just to ensure uh, that uh, the EU could, could act. But on the, uh, on the uh, requirement for the Council Commission, you limited, but that's part of the institutional balance. That's not, the, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking more about the capacity of member states to veto. Uh, and so I fully, I, I fully agree with the importance of the institutional balance and the protection of the Commission, because uh, without the Commission, the EU does not have the knowledge power, the firepower, to develop collective policy. It, without the Commission, you simply can't get, I'm thinking to the MFF and the Recovery Fund. But there was a lot of work done on the Recovery Fund in the Eurogroup, necessary to get the, the, uh, to get the finance ministries on board. But the actual package could only come from the Commission. It's the only institution capable of constructing packages because it, you know, I, it's the label technocratic, it's also the knowledge powerhouse of this system. Uh, and without it, the system uh, would be in trouble. And then what the uh, EU could do about backsliding. I think it was most unfortunate that Orban started backsliding in 2010 as the EU was entering the acute phase of the Eurozone crisis. The, there simply was not enough political capacity in the system to handle Orban at the time. And then he got away with too much. And as he got away with too much, uh, he, um, he then became emboldened and did more. And remember that Orban, Orban started controlling the Hungarian political system from the bottom up. He didn't start at the top, he started. So he had a support base. So he captured a state. And I'm, I'm more hopeful about Poland because Poland has continued to have a viable opposition. But can I tell you what I would do with them? I would flood them with auditors and make their lives hell. That's what I would do. I would send auditors to audit everything because you will find it. The corruption is there on the use of the structural funds and make their lives hell. 
Article 7 was designed for one Roma state in the EU. It was designed at a time of optimism about democracy and transition and the permanence, the end of history. And we know that's not our world. But if we actually thought about political development in Europe and thought about the histories of all of this part of Europe, they've had very weak democratic traditions and democratic experiences. And a lot of contestation around borders, minorities. So we should not be surprised. And so for me, it's not, and I know that there are a lot of my colleagues whom I have tremendous respect for, they're fighting the rule of law fight every single day, calling it out, and I think that's necessary. If this is episodic, then there isn't a problem long-term. Intergenerational change will sort it over time. But if it becomes a permanent feature of the EU, then that, that is a problem. But one thing we should welcome at least is that the EU has become a far less diplomatic and far less polite system. There was a time when heads of government wouldn't dream of being critical of a fellow head of government around the table. It was simply not done. That's no longer the case. Things are called out by heads of government after the senior, you know, real rows, but real rows are good. That's that's politics. But my uh, I, I would uh, I would use the uh, conditionalities, the rule of law conditionalities for the RRF and things like this. On Poland at the moment, I think there's a very delicate balance between ensuring that Poland is held to account while also helping Poland given the pressure that it's under from the war in Ukraine. So I think I think it's not, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's as easy a case. I think there's a real challenge for the EU in keeping that balance. And as we see within the Commission, it's causing a lot of conflict and a lot of soul searching because there are no easy answers. But auditories, I would make their lives better. Paperwork, very good. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm very conscious of passing time. Uh, and so I'm going to take just one question from our one of our uh, uh, online audience from Jack O'Sullivan of Irish Solar Innovations, which I think gives us a question with a brings us from full circle from the beginning saying, after such a wonderful and uplifting opening to the seminar and John Hume's devotion to peace so perfectly expressed. I have one question. What would John's advice be today in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing movement? So I, I think John would recognize that this war was not something that Ukraine wanted or asked for. It was something that they were invaded. And I think John was not a pacifist. Uh, he didn't like war. And uh, for good reason, because no one, I mean, no sane human being should, should, should want war. But I think he would recognize uh, Ukrainian agency. Thank you. But I could be wrong. Well, we're going to have closing words from Sean Farron, the chairman of the uh, John and Pat Hume Foundation. So perhaps no better person to maybe provide also an answer to that question. Sean, please. Thank you very much. Indeed, David, uh, David said, I'm 
chair of the board of the John and Pat Hume Foundation. But before I proceed with uh, expressing uh, the board and the foundations, thanks uh, to all those who've been involved in organizing uh, this evening's event, I would like to make on behalf of the foundation uh, presentations to Bridget and uh, belatedly to, to David. And Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. I, I have a, uh, my son won a painting, believe it or not, of Zelensky. <laughs> and so this is going to go beside Zelensky. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I want to express, of course, uh, our very sincere thanks uh, to uh, Professor Bridget for a wonderfully stimulating lecture. The analysis and the views she expressed, I think would have been strongly, very strongly endorsed by John and Pat Hume, deeply committed Europeans that both of them were. Indeed, Pat often recalled that the first time she heard John speak in public was at a debate in Derry, where the motion was that Ireland should join the European common market. So from his earliest ventures onto the public stage, John made no secret of his support for the European project. And as we know, he remained one of its strongest advocates throughout his political career. So thank you, Bridget, uh, for your contribution in John and Pat's honor. Thanks also to uh, David, Ambassador David, for moderating uh, this evening's event. And David, of course, inaugurated uh, the series of lectures dedicated to the memory of John and Pat Hume last year. The foundation also wishes to express its thanks uh, to the Institute for agreeing to host this evening's event. And so we thank uh, Barry Colfer and his team. And we thank also members of the board and in particular, Rory Quinn, who's been with us this evening and Rory assures me that uh, there will be plenty of opportunities for cooperation between the foundation uh, and the institute as we uh, both develop our respective uh, programs. Our thanks to our own foundation's general secretary Tim Atwood for all the hard work that he has put into organizing this evening's event. Very typical of uh, Tim indefatigable in undertaking all the responsibilities that fall to him. So thank you very much indeed, Tim. And finally, let me uh, thank yourselves, whether here in person or with us virtually. We trust you will keep in touch with uh, the foundation as we develop our programs. The foundation has been established and in the public domain only a year and a half at this stage, has been established to both commemorate the memory of John Hume, the contribution that he made, and indeed supported in making that contribution by his wife, Pat, but also to sustain and to develop the principles and the values that John stood by and articulated um, throughout his uh, public career. So I hope uh, that you will keep in touch with us, our 
website is humefoundation.org. And with that, uh, I invite you to uh, mingle and to sup a, a glass or two of wine. And thank you again for your attendance. And thanks in particular to David and to Bridget for their great contribution. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA. Sharing ideas, shaping policy.